Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss Max Verstappen's Malaysian Grand Prix victory and ask whether he's to blame for his 2017 travails. Verstappen finally took his first Formula One victory of 2017 and the second of his career in the Malaysian Grand Prix. I'm your host Ed Straw and joining me to look at Verstappen's victory and the implications as well as all the other incidents and accidents that occurred during the Malaysian Grand Prix I've got two very well-informed guests. First up we have Glenn Freeman. Now Glenn we just hauled you out of a meeting to join this podcast where you were discussing a new Autosport app I believe. What can you tell everybody about that? Not too much at the moment but I can assure people that one is being worked on flat out uh, it's been a long time since our last app was released and we know that we have a lot of people who still use it which we're very grateful for so we think it's long overdue that we should do a new one and our development team is flat out on that at the moment I can't give you a time frame but I'm hoping it's a relatively short time frame and yeah as you say that's taken up a lot of my time at the moment but more than happy to join you on this podcast to talk about a Grand Prix as well. Also joining me is Stuart Codling. Now, for you, Codders, it's more about what you've not been doing than what you have actually been doing. I hear you you cried off some athletic activity, and as you can tell from my build, I don't approve of people crying off athletic activity. I, I, I deny all knowledge of crying off. Actually, yeah, I cried off. 
uh, I was supposed to ride 75 miles, which would have been, I'd, I'd say, it, it would have been closer to um, 90 if you factored in riding to the actual event HQ and, and then back again after the uh, the sportive. Uh, I uh, threw open the curtains at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, uh, regarded the Stygian murk without, with a roomy eye, made myself a coffee, looked at the weather forecast, saw that it was going to hoof it down with rain, thought, well, tell you what, I'll actually watch the Grand Prix live instead, and uh, man the tweets on uh, the F1 Racing account and keep the, the listeners out there entertained. You've blown but- your cover. Well, I'm but one of the tweetists. Uh, I did have to um, hand over briefly uh, during the Grand Prix when the cat made a militant attempt to occupy my lap and I'd put the computer aside. But apart from that, uh, all went smoothly. Well, of course, if you've got multiple people on that account, people will never tell when it's your not-at-all-distinctive style turning up on the F1 Racing Twitter. <laughs> I have no idea what you mean. <laughs> Excellent. Well, the good thing is that uh, even though Cotters wasn't very active at the weekend, he is now at least well-informed. I did peel a sweet potato yesterday. I have to tell you this. Is this unusual? Is, is this a world first? It, People it, have been doing that for a long time. Well, as you know, I have seven years in the catering industry, but never have I come across a sweet potato shaped like this. I even tweeted about it from my personal account because uh, older listeners based in the UK might remember the BBC's That's Life programme that used to be on on Sunday nights. With a talking dog that could say the word jersey and sausages. All that sort of thing. And of course you remember the amusingly shaped vegetables. And uh, I saw this tweet. As, as I was uh, as I opened this packet of sweet potatoes and grasped the contents within, out popped a sweet potato that was a spitting image of the Baron Harkonnen from the film Dune. They're going to send many, many people searching the internet for, for that particular one. Having uh, having defeated that particular, is that going to make the cut? <laughs> I, I don't know whether that. Well, he made the cut, so it's only fair that should that should make the cut. So Max Verstappen, he's finally won. This was a season that was meant to be all about Red Bull getting in the title fight. It's been a pretty disastrous year by many measures for Verstappen. That's only his second podium, seven DNFs out of fifteen, including the the Malaysia win. So, what do we make of this? Is this Verstappen gaining some redemption after a bad season? Or is it just something that, that was due and he deserved? Oh, he definitely deserves it. Uh, I was at the weekend running the Autosport Live race commentary uh, during the Grand Prix and it, it dawned on me at one point when we were about halfway in and Max had the race thoroughly under control by that point that you know he doesn't always get that far into a Grand Prix and he certainly had a lot of races that he hasn't finished. And I was almost loath to mention that he was probably hoping for once that the car would hold together on him because... You don't. You didn't. I didn't want to jinx it for him. It was a fantastic performance. But I think for all the other races where he retired from promising positions, this would have been the most painful because this was a dominant position. This was a win that once he pulled away from Lewis Hamilton, did look in the bag. Hamilton didn't have an answer. There was no one else behind the struggling Mercedes who could offer a genuine threat. So I think Max would probably take the retirements when he had them, as frustrating as they were in those races earlier in the season to get to the chequered flag here. Can you imagine if he'd been 30, 40 laps into this race and then the car had broken down? There's something to which you alluded, Ed, in your Singapore Grand Prix report in Autosport magazine, which is that there's kind of an easy and convenient narrative that's grown up that somehow Max is the author of all his own misfortunes. And actually, when you look back rigorously at what's gone wrong for him this year, a lot of those things were not of his own making. He had brake problems, which were you know, car issues. Yeah, Bahrain. He had um, the, the the start line problem 
in um, Austria, where his aunt, was it, his, his anti-stall kicked in. Obviously, he he was then out of position. He got hit. So not all of those DNFs were of his own making. The, there is an argument to suggest that you make your own luck, but at the same time, if your car breaks, that isn't necessarily something that you've done to it. Especially these days. I think in once upon a time, mechanical sympathy was a much more important part of a driver's skill set. These days, there are a lot of fail-safes in place already. There are a lot of things the driver can't do anymore that can damage the equipment because the equipment's so much better. So often when it fails, it, it's not that he's been able to do something to be hard on the car. So it would be wrong to say that he's been the master of his own downfall a lot of the times when the car has broken on him. I agree with Codders that that would be unfair. The amazing thing with Verstappen is just how difficult this season has been no driver this season has completed as few racing kilometers as he has other than those who haven't been around all the time he's done a total of 2618 kilometers in races Hamilton has the most with 4530 and so that puts Verstappen even behind Fernando Alonso who didn't even go to Monaco and couldn't start in Russia that is an achievement exactly so it tells you how how bad it's it's been for Verstappen but everybody's just too quick to pile onto the bandwagon. Whenever you get a young driver who starts doing well very quickly, I think there's always this kind of feeling among people that they haven't paid their dues for some reason and that therefore it's all come too easily for them and you have to talk them down. But Verstappen is a genuine top-line driver and I think it's it would have been a crying shame if he hadn't been able to get a win this year. And it's doubly good that it was a really well-earned victory. He passed Hamilton, pulled away at six-tenths a lap, and it was that early phase of the race that won it for him. Well, Max was asked after the race, how does this compare to your first win, you know, Barcelona 2016, when the two Mercedes drivers crashed out on the first lap spectacularly. And then really, he had a he had a race against Kimi Raikkonen, didn't he? And then uh, I think Daniel Ricciardo in the other Red Bull was on a less preferable strategy. So everything sort of fell into place for him, and he executed the race very well. But Max said, what he liked about this race was it was he sort of grabbed it by the horns very early on and he led from the front and he's not had that in Formula One before and that's what made it so satisfying. So it's a completely different type of victory. I think that's significant as well, that we've now seen him lead from the front as a, as a top driver should be able to. Beating Mercedes on pure pace, which is quite unusual in the hybrid era as well. A, a lot of non-Mercedes victories since 2014 have come as a result of Mercedes breaking. Well, that's the first time a Red Bull has beaten a Mercedes in what might be termed a straight fight for, for Grand Prix victory since before the, the V6 hybrid era. So that, that's how significant that victory is. And I think it surprised Mercedes. The problem Lewis had, he was complaining about getting the, the D rate on the electrical power early on, which was expected. But the fact that Mercedes took that strategy with it trying to optimize the kind of lap time while they were building up the the battery energy rather than holding it back perhaps to defend on the straight suggests that they didn't think Verstappen would be in that position to to challenge so that hints to me that Mercedes were surprised by by this Red Bull pace. They were on a bit of a roller coaster this weekend weren't they uh, Mercedes because they had the great hope of the new aero package the great disappointment when uh, the, the new aero package was not necessarily any better than the old one. Uh, the the panic moment when they decided to run one package on one, the other on the other, which is a sure sign that you lost. That's never a good sign. Being half a second off. Uh, and then all of a sudden, moment of genius by Hamilton, pole position. The convenient headline there is uh, we're all okay. But they must have known that in the race, they wouldn't have been able to sustain it. It, it shows the big gulf between qualifying and race pace this year that there are some cars that can just 
perhaps not turn it on in qualifying, especially the the Red Bull with with the Renault deficit. But uh, over the course of a race, uh, when once you factor out engine mode trickery and that sort of thing, they can be really strong. Ben Anderson in his Grand Prix report declared the Red Bull chassis perhaps the best on the grid which is a long way from where it was at the start of the season because for all of the problems they've had with Renault over the past few years, there have been legitimate question marks about whether Red Bull has come out with a great package aero-wise. But this is what frustrates me. We So often now we get to this stage of the year and we're talking about what a great car the Red Bull is and how it's, it's there now to be a thorn in the side of usually Mercedes but occasionally Ferrari if they're having a good year as well. I still don't think that's acceptable. You know, we're recording it. October has begun now. And now we're saying that Red Bull's got on top of everything. And and this is a common theme and has been for the last few years that expectations build because the season finishes strongly for Red Bull. They under-deliver at the start of the year. They spend the first half of the year being a bit off the pace, blaming the engine. And then the car comes good after the summer break, maybe for some of the flyaway races. They get a few good results. Some wins are, are suddenly on the table for Red Bull, and that's great. But they've got to make sure next year they don't take that backward step again because they can't necessarily blame it on rule changes because we had a relatively stable period in 14 15 16 where as you say Ed there was a lot of attention on the engine but the chassis for large parts of that three-year period wasn't up to it this was supposed to be an aerodynamic Red Bull formula you could almost say these new 2017 rules and it's taken them quite a while to get on top of it actually and while it's excellent that they are now in the mix and there's a real chance that Red Bull could be a spoiler in this championship fight between Ferrari and Mercedes, Hamilton and Vettel, I still don't think that's good enough for a team that has got world championship winning pedigree. Do you think that they're always trying to claw back a deficit and that just sets them further behind? So during the course of a season, they throw all these resources at making the car better and they could actually be through directing resources that way actually maybe setting themselves back for the following year's car development so they're then behind there they have to put resources into that to claw back that deficit they're always sort of um, in the words of Henry Henry Kelly playing catch-up it's a never-ending cycle and I think Red Bull did that in their early years I remember David Coulthard telling me that when the team was trying to establish itself and it was a midfield runner they actually placed quite a lot of importance on finishing the year strongly because it was a good way to you know, make the car stand out and make the investment from the owners uh, look worthwhile. And they could, you would often see a Red Bull car when it was a midfield car get some good results right at the end of the season. But they always paid the price for it at the start of next year because they they'd taken a few almost sort of free steps up the order towards the end of the season when everyone else is starting to switch attention. I could sort of understand it then because you're a team looking for any opportunity you can find especially in the days of only eight drivers scoring points and them being harder to come by. I can understand that strategy in their formative years, but you'd think by now the team is big enough, strong enough and well-run enough that they shouldn't be in that situation. But it does feel a bit like that, that they, they seem to be a team that always tries to push up to the end of one season and can't get out of that cycle that results in you paying for that at the start of the next year. And I suppose that since 14, with the engine deficit, and they haven't been as dominant, they're having to manage expectations from above once again, especially when you have the owner saying, well, I don't like this modern Formula One. Uh, that must be a little bit squeaky bum time when you've got the, the person who signs off the checks saying, ah, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting a bit bored with this. It also raises questions about some of the decision making because you've ended up with Red Bull having to spend early parts of the season troubleshooting because it's not just that they're 
behind or undercooked, should we say, at the start of the season. There seem to be some fundamental things that need to change, like the concept they took with regards to the level of downforce against the error efficiency, etc., that they had to kind of swerve a little bit away from. So it's not just being behind the development curve. It's like, oh, this isn't quite the right direction. Let's just change a few bits. And you kind of think, well, if that mistake hadn't been made, where would Red Bull be now? Red Bull can win the Malaysian Grand Prix on pace, but could they absolutely dominate it on pace had they got all of that right? Possibly, even with a Renault engine. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Lewis said after the race that he knows that if Max had been pushing the whole time, he'd have been half a minute down the road. So, you know, the, the race was maybe closer than it could have been. And that's just the way modern Formula One is now. You don't try and win the race by a lap anymore, do you? You just sort of keep a, a safe margin. And Rebel were experts at that in the V8 era with, with Vettel. The key piece of information I think we received over the summer about Rebel's problems early in the year, they certainly did try to go for a, a simple aero concept that was maybe a bit more low drag to try and compensate for the engine and they were just they were way off but the big omission we had over the summer was that it was the size it was the new size of the car and the size of the tires uh, affected their wind tunnel i think i heard something like the 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 side walls of the tires were too close to the edge of the wind tunnel so that meant that the the, the type of the air the way the air was flowing down the side of the car was just completely inaccurate to what they needed so that they paid a big price for that over the the start of the year, and I think that's why maybe their aero concept was so simple when you compare it particularly to the Ferrari, which I know Gary Anderson told us from the moment that car launched, it looked incredibly complex. I think the really sad thing is as well that we know Red Bull operationally can be a strong championship winning team in terms of running what they've got, and they've certainly got two drivers who are both very capable of winning championships, Ricardo and Verstappen are both capable of doing it. They're, That's a hell of a lineup. It's stunningly good. They're very different drivers. And in some ways this season, Verstappen has put Ricardo in the shade. But in other areas, Ricardo has put Verstappen in the shade because they're both very, very, very good drivers. And it would be absolutely phenomenal to have those two up there in the title fight. You could argue that Red Bull, argue strongly in fact, Red Bull is the team that's got the biggest chance of having two genuine title contenders in 2018, let's say, if there's this fantasy world where Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull are all give or take the same level of performance. Well, I wrote this over the winter last year when we were all expecting Red Bull to take that big step and be the team again. We were shaping up to have a fantastic rivalry because after the years of Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton and it all got a bit nasty and Mercedes had to do what they could to try and manage that uh, in public at least. We had two dynamic, exciting, very talented drivers who were getting on at the time and, and I believe still are. And I thought the prospect of those two in a championship fight in a competitive Red Bull was going to be fantastic. And I feel that we've had a good year with Ferrari versus Mercedes and Vettel being very competitive. But I still feel like we're missing out on what what could have been if you throw those two into the mix. Because they are fantastic, exciting, relatively new still talents in F1. And in some ways, we've potentially been robbed of that for the last two races, because if anything, the spread between those three teams in Singapore and in Malaysia has been closer than we've seen, well, since before the 2014 regulations shake up. So these two races, without some other factors, I'm sure we'll get back onto the Ferrari side of things in Malaysia, but without the accident in Singapore and without Ferrari's technical problems in Malaysia, there was a real chance of multi-car fights for victories. And it's actually a real shame we've had that taken away from us. Yeah, also a shame that Bottas has been having a bit of a nightmare and that Raikkonen just continues to be very ho-hum. But I'll not proceed 
any further down that line in case you know my my fortnightly hate mail arrives early from <laughs> finland it'll be it'll be up to weekly but it is worth mentioning on on bottas he said that this is what was his quote that it's maybe the most difficult time of my career so far because he had a a good run in the first half of the season after a slightly difficult start first few races where he didn't put everything together he got a couple of wins, one in Russia and Austria, and we were thinking, actually, could Bottas be a contender in the title fight? But since the August break, his qualifying performances have been nowhere. If you look at it over the last four races, Italy was a wet qualifying session, so he was 2.3 seconds off Hamilton. Kind of ignore that one, he's clearly behind. But if you look in the last three other sessions, ignoring that one, Belgium, 0.541 off, Singapore, 0.684 off, Malaysia, 0.682 off, that's off teammate Hamilton. That's too big a gap i actually think we can look back to just before the summer break and the second half of that race in hungary because do you remember then hamilton had to let bottas back through and it was very good of him to do that but remember how much ground bottas had lost when hamilton was chasing the ferraris once he released him bottas couldn't keep up so that was almost a precursor to what we've seen since the summer break that hamilton does appear to be in a different league to bottas at the moment and it's it's such a shame because bottas made that step up to mercedes like you say ed he had a short time frame to get his head around everything for the start of the year. So there were a few maybe difficulties to begin with, but they looked really settled. And maybe when the car was in its, what you could call its first difficult phase, he was dealing with it really well in comparison to Hamilton and the gap was very close. Lewis appears to just keep going from strength to strength and finding new levels of performance, even when the car's not at its best, as Codder's reference with the qualifying lap in Malaysia, which was phenomenal. And Bottas just seemed completely lost now. And for this to come just off the back of him signing the one-year contract extension, it's it's such a shame. I'm glad he's got that year in the bag already because there'll be some severe doubts now. Mercedes, I think, are willing him to turn it around. But if the solution was easy, they'd have found it by now. Yes, it's, it's clear there's a fundamental problem there. And Hamilton is just making him look very ordinary. It's, it's, I suppose the, the best way of looking at it, that it's, it's not that Bottas is doing a conspicuously poor job. He's just seemingly very ordinary and Hamilton just seems to be able to find something that isn't necessarily there which must be doubly dispiriting for Bottas when his teammate can just sort of pull something out of his sleeve. The bottom line is you have to be at or near the top of your game if you're in a top Grand Prix team or you'll be exposed and I think that's probably what we're seeing from Bottas. Like you say he's not driving disastrously badly but he's just a little bit below where he should be and that translates into this huge chasm of performance so he knows what he needs to do and you'll hope that he will get to the bottom of what he's struggling with and try and string together some slightly more compelling performances in the next five races. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would add is that it's no secret that this Mercedes is a difficult car. So it's not that Lewis is blowing everyone away and Bottas is finishing fifth. Lewis is having to achieve the maximum, absolute maximum of himself to get results out of this car. And Bottas is maybe just struggling to do that. So it's slightly different, but it's still those numbers you read out, Ed, there's no hiding behind those. Hamilton's certainly driving absolutely superbly at the moment. There's no question about that. Now, Ferrari's only been tentatively mentioned a few times in this podcast. I don't think we've got quite this deep into a post-race autosport podcast this season without talking about Ferrari, and that says a lot. Ferrari basically excused itself in the battle for victory. First with Vettel's problem in FP3, then the subsequent turbo problem in Q1, and then Raikkonen having a similar problem to the, the qualifying one Vettel had before the start of the race. Vettel came back through to fourth place, very good drive. Maybe he could have got Ricardo, but it was just at the point where the tyres were, were getting past their best. So I think you'd say fourth was a good damage limitation job. But the fact is, Ferrari has had a potentially race-winning car the last two races, 
and it's got a grand total of one fourth place out of it, which is no matter what the reasons for it, some of them are down to the certain drivers, some of them are down to the technical side. That's extremely bad for Ferrari, isn't it? I'd say it's worse than bad. They've had two consecutive races where they've been able to convert race-winning pace into a very, very small haul of points, um, whether that be uh, colliding with each other and Verstappen at the start line in Singapore to, um, what, what was it here? It was some sort of um, airbox component that um, uh, was, was leaking air or something like that. Just, just one, It's a case of, I was about to say a 50p part, but it's carbon fibre, so it would be considerably more expensive than that. But it's, it's an inconsequential component that has failed and on both cars and uh, caused them to just basically drop what should have been a 1-2. I think the, the pain of Singapore and Malaysia... They're both very painful, particularly coming back to back as they did in the calendar. But Singapore was a race they were always banking on getting a big haul of points. So for that to go away, that hurt. The reason Malaysia will hurt so much is this is maybe one that wasn't expected to be a gimme and was shaping up and looks like it could have been. I think we're probably all in agreement that while Verstappen did a fantastic job to win the race that was presented in front of him, I'm not sure he could have done that if Vettel had had a smooth weekend. So Ferrari are going, well, we certainly, you know, there was a, a big red ring around the Singapore Grand Prix and the Maranello calendar. That is one of our races. We are banking on that one. For Sepang to have suddenly appeared to be one of those races and for that to go begging as well, that's incredibly painful. And you're just running out of chances now, if you're Ferrari, to close that gap that Mercedes, through these difficult weekends, are somehow managing to expand. And perhaps that's just a case of Mercedes being that little bit sharper now in terms of maximising every weekend and fighting for a championship because of the recent experience the team's had. I know we've all placed doubts on Mercedes' ability to maybe race a rival for a championship because all the championships they've won have been between their two drivers and nobody else. But I think this year we are seeing that in a driver in Hamilton and maybe in operationally in the team as well, Mercedes are making sure they get the job done and they're, they're playing the cards they are dealt every time. And Ferrari at the moment are are giving them quite a few decent cards to play that they wouldn't have expected to have. But it's strange, isn't it? Because we all thought the real question would be whether Ferrari could maintain the development rate through the season. And they have. But what they haven't been able to do is minimise these errors and these technical problems that have absolutely not quite destroyed. But Vettel's chance of winning the championship are now very slender. He's 34 points behind Hamilton with 125 to play for. If Singapore and Malaysia had gone right, he'd be... Maybe like you could be talking 20 points to the good, which would completely transform what's going to happen. Now, I think Vettel, to be sure of winning the championship, would have to win every race for the rest of the season, which which isn't going to happen. So they just let it slip away from them, whether it's down to the level of pressure there is brought to bear at Marinello. Obviously, Sergio Marchione is always making comments in the press. There's always this desperation to do well. And we saw that in previous regimes where there's this, right, we must we must do this, we must do that, rather than just focusing on what, they need to do because it seems like the technical team in terms of development has done what they need to do but is the pressure telling on Vettel a little bit is that what led to the misjudgment at the start of Singapore you can't fault him for the problems in Malaysia well certainly not those before the checkered flag (laughs) but you have to ask is that part of the thing that's creating these errors a condition where people are more worried about being blamed for things and not making errors than worrying about just doing what they need to do. The culture of an organisation does touch every aspect of its operations. Ferrari does seem to be 
uh, an organisation that's constantly under some form of stress. Calmness breeds good practice, doesn't it? You need people to be calm and focused on what they're doing without pressures brought to bear from the top. Well, Codders, you interviewed Ross Braun uh, earlier this year, I think, for F1 Racing. And Ross has always been really good on the culture he encountered at Ferrari and almost had to eradicate at Ferrari. And I think he's he's been re- he's hinted in the past that he believes some of that culture has seeped back in since he left. And I think that's that's the really good point that Ed's raising there is that maybe just the pressure is telling at Marinello again. And whereas during that dominant Michael Schumacher era, you had people like Ross, you had people like Jean Tot who prevented that seeping out onto what you might call the shop floor. Maybe that has come back. And yeah, I've talked about Marcioni on this podcast before and I can't believe that what he, the way he acts and the way he talks is, is good for business inside the factory. And I'm sure that plays a part. And while we're on the topic of Vettel, we should talk about what happened at Turn 5 between him and Lance Stroll on the slowing down lap. Vettel versus Stroll, discuss. It was, a, it was, it was very interesting. Uh, it's never have I seen a Formula 1 car so quickly converted into a replica of Del Boy Trotter's reliant Regal. I, I still can't quite believe it really happened. It just, it just seems, it seems so bonkers. And I'm quite impressed, and I think you said this to me this morning, Ed, quite impressed with how much damage it did to the Ferrari when uh, the Williams <laughs> sort of got away unscathed. And you said uh, when they cut to Vettel's three-wheeled, um, three-wheeled machine, you were sort of thinking, "Well, where's the car he's hit?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I thought, "What, what went on there?" Well, my first thought was, was Vettel going slowly, and has Stroll just piled into the back of him and launched himself somewhere? Because it looked like that kind of impact. Obviously, that was nothing of the sort did happen, but it, it was concerning. So the stewards didn't apportion blame for that. They said neither driver was wholly or predominantly to blame for the incident. Everybody happy with that? Uh, relatively, yeah. Because uh, to begin with, I, I initially very much blamed Vettel for it because the only onboard that was instantly available was the onboard from Vettel, where he, you see him drive past and then turn left, um, and you think, well, you know, we've we've all had some wiseacre try and do that to us on a gyratory system, and uh, we we've had to lift off to avoid a shunt. So um, maybe that just happened. But then there is, there is another replay where you see both cars kind of turning into one another with an absence of malice. It's just carelessness. I suppose what we probably should be considering is that it was the end of a race. Both of them will have lost several kilos in body weight of fluids. Um, Mentally, I would imagine they were pretty much spent. So you can understand if both of them kind of had their eye off the ball, wrong sport, but weren't really concentrating that much on the task in hand. It is an accident. Yes, that's the definition. And if you're Vettel, I think, you should be more careful when you're, you're trying to race for a championship. You're trying to protect car components. You know, as as we are talking, there has been no verdict yet from Ferrari on if that gearbox can race again, and if it can't, he's got to take a penalty there. So he could pay a bigger price for that move. I It'd also, be amazing if he gets away without needing a yeah they, a they, gearbox change there. Yeah, they've told our guys the as we record this on Monday, the gearbox is going back to Maranello. They might be a verdict Monday night or Tuesday. Um, so. By the time a lot of people are listening to this podcast, we might have an answer. But yeah, it looks it looks pretty obvious given the damage that was done. But also, if you're Vettel, you've been a racing driver for a very long time. And in every category, people always drive offline on the slowdown lap to pick up rubber just to help make sure you're still over the, the weight limit. So if you're going to drive offline at quite an increased speed compared to someone you're trying to get around... 
there should be part of you that's thinking, well, he might want, he might be coming out here for the pickup. And I think what actually happened was Stroll had stayed offline out of turn four to get some rubber on that side of the track and is then going to go across the track, which is perhaps slightly careless. I certainly think that he could have been more aware, but he may not have expected someone to be coming at such a closing speed on the slowdown lap. So he's then drifting over to the other side to pick up some rubber. As I say, Vettel would have started hundreds and hundreds of races in his career, and he would have seen this happen all the time. So there must be so many times where drivers have seen a car do what you would consider an unconventional move to go from one part of the racing line to another. So I just think everyone could have been a bit more aware here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody needs to be sort of punished or that there needs to be blame apportioned to one side or the other. It is just carelessness. There are those who watch the Roman Grosjean on board and blame Stroll completely for it, but there's a bit of an optical illusion in that, in that Grosjean's going left at that point, which exaggerates yes. the amount to which Stroll looks like he's moving. So I think it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's both of you just pay attention a little bit more. I think it is also worth briefly adding that there are a lot of people questioning why Vettel didn't get any kind of reprimand for getting the lift from Verline, citing the... This is your specialist subject, isn't it? Is it my specialist subject? Because you, you appear to be the only, one of the only people who knows about the Weber penalty or whatever it was. Well, the Weber the... penalty in Singapore 2013, when he was out of the race, Alonso stopped on the slowdown lap to pick him up and give him a lift. Weber got a reprimand, which just so happened to be his third reprimand, which triggered a 10-place grid penalty for the following race. So there's one misapprehension there that Weber got a 10-place grid penalty for it. He didn't. It just triggered the, the reprimand on the number of reprimand system. But Weber wasn't done for the lift. He was done for re-entering the track without permission because the marshals told him not to. You got Because he was actually off the track, whereas Vettel... Vettel never left the Vettel track. never left the track, yeah. So it was a slightly different situation there. So that, that was what Weber was done for. Ed said this wasn't his specialist subject. But now you can is. see why I said it was. This is not only entirely fascinating, I say it merits its place very much. It is the crown jewel of this podcast and it must make the final cut. The trouble is, when you know so much about so many things... You just get caught out by how knowledgeable you are sometimes. On I really, you know, the exposition is marvellous. It was almost like watching the pilot episode of a new TV drama where every piece of new information has to be crammed in as tightly as possible. Anyway, so we're happy with Vettel Stroll, no action. Another thing we saw in Malaysia was a Grand Prix debut for Pierre Gasly in the Toro Rosso. We did a podcast last week about why this has happened and a little bit about Pierre Gasly's rise to Formula One. Did a good job, didn't he? He did a great job. I was in that podcast last week where we talked about it and we were trying to set some goals for him, which I'm sure he didn't care what we think. I think there's only one person whose goals you have to achieve (laughs) as a Red Bull junior. But I did say that I think you agreed with me, Ed. If he could get into Q2 and be somewhere near science, that would be an achievement. I I said at the time that if science then goes on to Q3 and Gasly doesn't make the cut, that's still a good job. In fact, he ended up very close to science in qualifying and that, that, I think, was the key indicator because the race was always going to be difficult. The way for, Formula One races are very complex now. The machinery is complex. You've got, he had the problem that everybody has seemingly on their debut where losing a lot of time with things like blue flags. Um, but I think there were enough high points, enough key high points, that it was a, a excellent debut. And uh, he, can be, he can be very pleased with that. And it shows, once again, that if a driver is good enough, get them in the car. You know, I, I don't know why so many teams are so conservative about trying out these guys who have the talent. Considering they are all spending so much money on young driver programs nowadays, you'd expect to see more of this. And, but we only get it because Red Bull has a second team. 
to put these guys in. You know, Science is a great example of someone who is incredibly talented and should move up the grid. But Red Bull is almost overstocked with top talent at the moment, so it's had nowhere to put him. And the Renault deal that moves Science there next year on a, a loan move actually does everybody a favour because it, it keeps him happy, gives him an opportunity of a manufacturer. And it's managed. It's actually created a bit of space for Red Bull because it was all getting a bit cramped there. And certainly it was impressive from Gasly to do a decent job because he was in a bit of discomfort because the seat wasn't quite right. He also said in an interview that he didn't have any water. Well, he did have water, but apparently it was when he was pressing the the water feed button, it was just spraying water in his general direction rather rather than into his mouth. So, And that's when I just developed a drinking problem. <laughs> Excellent airplane reference. So that's not an easy race to make your debut in. Doubly so if you're a bit uncomfortable. Trebly so if you're struggling a bit for, for water. Hydration. Or at least water in the, in the wrong place, as it were. So I think it's it's good for Gasly, and I agree completely. It's good they've put him in. They're not going to learn anything new about Daniel Kvyat in that race. So put Gasly in, see how he gets on, and certainly he'll have done absolutely nothing to weaken his chance of being a full-time Toro so driver next season. I think actually in that situation, that's probably all he could do was drive himself out of a 2018 seat. Because if, if he delivers, then they go, right, well, we've had you on the scheme for this long. We've given you this opportunity because we think you're good enough. Thank you for proving us right. The the more surprising outcome would have been if they've put him in the car and it's gone really badly. And then they go, well, who do we put in the seat now? If we're assuming that Kvyat does come back next season to maybe be his teammate and his benchmark. So there'll be size of relief all round I think the Gasly camp will be happy with how it went I think Red Bull will be pleased that right this guy if we need him and if we've got the space for him which it looks like they have he's ready well for those of you who want to hear a little bit more about Pierre Gasly I'd urge you to check out how Pierre Gasly got his F1 race chance released last week on this very podcast now we did see some other incidents and collisions in this race all of them before the checkered flag unlike the one we so far discussed we had a little bit more fun from Radio Alonso Everyone's favourite station. (laughs) It's a great comedy station, isn't it? It is good. That's his main job in races now. What an idiot. Hulkenberg is right, he said, after a a scrape with Kevin Magnussen. How to say, Kevin Magnussen is making himself quite a few enemies with his his on-track conduct. What do we make of that incident and him in general? Is, Is that becoming just a thing, though? It just seems to have been a convenient narrative that everyone's latched onto this. Magnussen is uh, a menace uh, theme. And then every time he does something that might possibly confirm that impression, it uh, is duly confirmed and they ignore any evidence to the contrary. So it's classic kind of cognitive dissonance. It's a bit like what happened to Verstappen, actually, when he started racing at the front and was maybe a bit a bit rough with some people and all the driver, all the other drivers at the front didn't really like it and were trying to put him in his place. And I think Magnussen is definitely on the aggressive side uh, and you know that he's going to be exposed more often because he's in a mid- frantic midfield pack where the competitive nature between the various teams changes from weekend to weekend so sometimes a Haas is a good car sometimes it's a bad car so you're always going to be racing slightly different people in more frantic situations than maybe what you see at the front what I liked about this you know okay Magnussen was a bit rough and maybe crossed the line but Alonso had his moan on the radio, but he also did something about it. So he got he got back involved with Magnussen and said, right, I'm I'm the big dog here. I'm going to run you off the road. And then it becomes a sort of 50-50. So they both got their elbows out. They both took a swing at each other and we move on. And what's bothered me with the other drivers that Codders was referencing there, who it has become fashionable to moan about Magnussen. 
that's all they do. It's like, oh, he ran me off the road. It's like, well, go and run him off the road and give yeah. him some of his own medicine. You know, be, Put be up a man about up. it. It was, yeah, actually exactly. quite, it was actually quite a good bit of racing, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I have no problem with that. Yeah. Nobody, nobody hit anyone like really hard. You know, there was no real damage done. Nobody, there was no wheel banging that forced one car up in the air. Nobody was sent through the grass at high speed. It was just Alonso came across a driver who didn't want to seed ground. And that's quite, it's quite difficult to not see ground to Fernando Alonso if he's in that kind of mood. So, yeah, I was entertained by it. And, you know, let, let's have more of that. Let's have less of the complaining and less of the make sure you report this on the radio because then we can send it to Charlie, which there was a bit of that in this race and it really bothered me. And, yeah, you know, the whole point of the way this, the racing is being governed now is to allow more of this to happen. So let's have it. It's very tedious. That's become a big thing. And we also had almost the reverse where Ocon complained about what happened at the second corner of the race when he got sandwiched between Massa and Perez, when he, which he decided to blame Perez for, which, in fairness, it wasn't Perez's fault. It wasn't Massa's fault. It wasn't really Ocon's fault. It was just three cars going into a space but where... Talking of things that are fashionable, the Force <laughs> India drivers blaming each other for collisions. But, yeah. but, and he was funny... Stroll as well. He, he, he didn't say Massa on the radio. He said it was Stroll. So that's another sort of convenient okay, whipping the wrong driver. But, but it's interesting that then Ocon was told, yeah, we could have done with that as a report, basically. That really bothered me. Basically, tell us later, don't moan about your teammate over the radio. And it does make you wonder how much impact the radio chatter must be having. I can't imagine it's a great deal. They can see stuff happening, the stewards. They're not going to be just ignoring these things going on. That's what I'm puzzled by. If some... I think the the TV commentators made the cricket reference, kind of don't ask, don't get when you want a decision. I kind of like the idea of competent stewards sitting there watching it for themselves. And I would actually want to judge it without knowing that somebody's whining or somebody's had to lodge a formal complaint. You know, we've got an ex-driver in there. We've got very experienced people who are used to making these decisions during races or even after races. Let them look at all the screens and the information for themselves and decide if something needs to be investigated. Yeah, if I, and if I was a cricket umpire and have a load of people charging at me going, yeah, LBW, I'd just be inclined to not give it just to spite them. We also saw the Ocon Science contact. What do we make of that? Well, uh, the big question I had uh, before we started recording this was, has there been any onboard footage from Science's car? The external camera doesn't really show where Science was in relation to Ocon, so it's quite hard to judge. But then you watch it from Ocon's uh, roll hoop and you think well he's he's giving science a lot of room there so I, I think we certainly can't blame Ocon for this because he's he could have I believe he could have taken the corner tighter and still left enough room for a Formula One car so I'd like to know what was going on in science's cockpit I think he claimed after the race that he felt he was pinched or squeezed or needed more room Looking how much from room where, did he want? exactly from where Ocon was on the track how much more do you need to get around that corner it's not the first slightly random incident that science has had this year for for what a great driver he is it certainly seems to be a slight literally a blind spot at the moment in in some of these wheel-to-wheel confrontations so it, it was a strange one it was very weird and it was very very amusing to hear Franz Tost afterwards say that it was 100% Ocon's front fault rather um if if I'd been watching that race in a pub I'd have proceeded directly to the bar to order a pint of whatever he was drinking because that is the most ludicrous suggestion a pint of red bull 
Because he's very on brand, Franz Toss. He's, so all, yeah, he's, he's, he's very, very good, isn't he? If when he knows the camera's on him, he'll uh, open up a can and uh, if drink it. You had ordered yourself a pint of Red Bull. You might have gone outside and got some exercise at the weekend. I might actually been able to ride <laughs> seventy-five miles. You would have sounded that manic on the radio as well. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is, you you have that energy spike, and then you have the equivalent of uh, either, uh, well, either Captain Caveman and his bad time for power failure, or or a Mercedes engine derating at the end of the straights. So, all of a sudden, you gone so maybe a pint of red bull isn't appropriate energy fuel for uh, a 75 mile sportive that you've already decided you're not bothering to actually ride (laughs) there's also one other little moment which was interesting in fact after the race this became a bit more interesting where stoffel van dorn went past the two williams drivers after making his pit stop and paddy lowe talked after the race about how they were swapping the two williams drivers around again having pitted massa who was behind stroll earlier because that had a track position advantage with regards to other cars. And then Stroll had complained, and then they were swapping them back round, and that's what allowed Van Dorn to easily get back past both of them. What do we make of that? Seems like a slightly odd thing to be doing at that stage. Yeah, the timing wasn't great. Uh, to be trying to execute that swap around, and there is a time loss that comes with that, That's it, it's impossible to avoid. To be doing that while a car you are racing... And I think the Williamses were behind Van Dorn before the pit stop sequence, but there was certainly an opportunity having pitted before him to jump him during the stops. So he's coming out of the pit lane and the Williams drivers are trying to swap positions at that moment. And then it all gets a bit messy in the first corner. But that whole scenario and Van Dorn being able to scamper off up the road afterwards seems to have been caused by Williams needing to get Stroll back ahead of Massa. Now, we all heard Stroll have a little moan on the radio when they were side by side, I think the lap before. So Williams obviously felt the need to act quite quickly. I admire the honesty from Williams. I don't think they necessarily needed to um, come out and tell us exactly what was happening there. It wasn't that obvious from the TV camera. So I never want to, I never want to give teams a reason not to tell us as much about their races um, as, as they can. And that was good. But this one does seem like they've exposed themselves for making a bit of a blunder. Um, even if it's just in the timing if you want to swap the cars around great but to do it at that moment seems very inopportune it was quite a weird one because Massa had been behind and quite a way behind Stroll uh, before they pitted and Massa pitted first and in effect undercut him well, uh, they responded, were they responding to someone else like Hulkenberg yeah, or someone yeah. like it, that it's, a, it's think... a fairly powerful undercut as well in that yeah. race so it was a it was a decision made by the team to pit the second driver because that would maximise the overall. what was going on behind you strategically. Yeah, exactly. To me, it said something about a team that's focusing on the wrong things. If you want to sort it out later, do that. But we all know about what the situation behind Stroll being in that team is. I generally haven't had a problem with that. I think all credit to him for making the most of his opportunity. Actually, I think Stroll's been performing pretty well. But they need to be focusing on maximising the result. And it's almost like their number one priority was to undo what had been done at a point as quickly as, as, possible. Quickly as possible. But there was plenty of time left in the race. You know, make that swap at another exactly. time. And they knew Van Dorn was in the in the pit window for them, so it didn't it didn't necessarily affect the result. You could argue that Van Dorn had the pace to get past them both. You could argue that a Honda engine car would have struggled to. Well, pass this is them. the thing. But he it, he was quicker, so he ended up ten seconds down the road, I think, by the end. But we saw from Fernando Alonso, who got shuffled down the pack early on, that a McLaren can't come back through on sheer pace on track 
because their lap time gain is in parts of the track where you can't overtake people. So Alonso wasn't quick enough on the straights to make up the places he'd lost, which is why he finished outside of the points. So there's every chance that a Mercedes-powered Williams, or two of them, could have kept a faster McLaren behind for the duration of the race. Yeah, Instead, they lost that opportunity. If we say Williams was perfectly correct to pick them in that order because of the race situation their first focus needs to be maximizing the team results there was a lot of laps later to fix that situation back round but also from a Williams perspective from a, t- a, a team perspective if you're going to finish in eighth and ninth place it doesn't really matter which way the two drivers are around unless there's other factors at play and I do think actually Williams pre this season I think Williams have been a little bit poor in terms of the way they've operated as a team with the two drivers you think right back to when Massa in his first season in 2014 got annoyed in Malaysia about being ordered to let Bottas pass so Bottas could have a go at passing Buns McLaren and they all kicked off about it and Massa was moaning and then of course next race or two races after Massa was then moaning about not being let past Bottas and we had the British Grand Prix where Bottas was quicker in 2015 and wasn't let past Massa and you sort of think Williams needs to focus on maximising its results Williams does not exist to serve its drivers in that scenario. They need to maximise their result and don't take their eye off the ball because as soon as you start worrying about all this other stuff when you're in the middle of a race, you're going to lose out to those teams that do have their eye on the ball. Or it's fans. They seem to... I remember after the Malaysian incident, there was a sort of a bit of a fan backlash on social media and the team were very apologetic and were, you know, flagellating themselves in public for having done such an unsporting thing. And um, if you want to win, win races, you don't spend a nanosecond of your time worrying what people are saying about you on Twitter. You've probably got some not massively well-paid uh, PR person in charge of social media whose task is to do that while you're doing the job of winning a race. And just to clarify, Paddy Lowe did say that they felt obliged to cover the Hulkenberg stop. So that was the trigger point. Okay, that was, that was, well, it, it, and it's fair enough. And I, actually, I don't have a problem fundamentally with Lance Stroll complaining about it. I understand why a driver is a bit irritated about that because they've been strategically jumped by their own teammate. But just, just tell him just tell him, look, 25 laps to go or whatever it was or more than that actually around the, the stops the midfield cars made. There's plenty of time. We'll sort this out. Right now we're racing someone else. You quite often hear that on the radio, don't you? You hear, right, right now our focus is this or we've got to worry about this car that may be in our pit window. You hear those sort of things on the radio and yeah, Williams should be able to say that sort of thing to Stroll. He's he's there as he should be there as a professional racing yeah. driver. <laughs> Patrick Head would certainly have uh, disabused him of any notions of complaining, wouldn't he? Codders, what do you think Patrick Head might have said over the radio? Listen, you overprivileged Canadian, I suggest you drive faster. Have <laughs> you ever said that to Jacques Villeneuve? <laughs> almost, almost certainly, every well, day. He, he did say. Jacques Villeneuve made very heavy weather of the 1997 World Championship. Still won it, though. Yeah, just about. Anyhow, great job by Van Dorn, though. Let's yep. let's not um, overlook that. Qualified seventh, finished seventh, maximum possible result for both scenarios, really. And he nearly got jumped by the two Williams. Would have possibly be would have probably been jumped by them had they not been after you, Clauding. And he got the half a sniff of a chance, and he took it brilliantly. Uh, I thought that was great work by him. And um, do you reckon that's his best Grand Prix so far? I'd, I'd say well, he said it was. He was convinced that it was, and I think that was a great example of what you want to see from a driver who you think may be a top driver is can they deliver the absolute maximum that is possible on the day or on the weekend from the car? And I think Stoffel got that absolutely spot on for the whole weekend. You know, he 
he looked like he belonged in a garage with Fernando Alonso this weekend. And really, with the junior career that he'd had, there was an expectation that he could be that good. And now what you want to see is that he can keep doing it. This has to be the launching pad, even in a not very good McLaren that looks a bit like an Arrows. It has to be now a launching pad for the rest of this season so that when the car is hopefully more competitive with a slightly better French engine in it next year, he can be there with Alonso. Whether they're the third best car, fourth best car, wherever they are, he needs to be constantly a thorn in Alonso's side, keep Alonso honest. And performances like that suggest that he's got it in him. So now it's out up to him to bring that out of himself on a regular basis. And I do think this is in keeping with the trend of performance we've seen from Van Dorn over yeah, the second this has half been of the season. Yes, it's his best all-round performance, but you would say the first half of the year was a little bit disappointing in, in many ways because we know how good Van Dorn is. He's been up against Alonso, incredibly difficult. He's done a lot of work learning and understanding and working with the team to try and grasp what it is that Alonso is doing to get the lap time. A lot of drivers would have been crushed by that, actually, that first half of the season. So it's great that Van Dorn has managed to get on top of things, get on top of what Alonso's doing, and show that there's a very good reason why he's so highly rated. And I'm sure that Van Dorn will continue that kind of progress in Suzuka this weekend. Agreed. So thanks for joining me, Glenn Freeman and Stuart Codling, to have a look back at the Malaysian Grand Prix Max Verstappen's victory. Looking ahead to Suzuka, check out autosport.com for all the latest news and reports and coverage from what's going on from our F1 team on the ground in the Far East. Also check out Autosport magazine out on Thursday, which will have Ben Anderson's Grand Prix analysis and all the usual reports and features you'd expect in the the print magazine. Also check out F1 Racing, which Stuart Codling spends most of his time on. What's the current issue that people can buy? It is currently still the October issue, but the November issue is just reaching its final strokes and will be out in a week or so's time. Of course, the issue on the shelves now is the one which is all about the title showdown between Hamilton and Vettel and about the moment that it was released. Vettel and Ferrari started self-destructing. <laughs> That's for sure when you plan these things well in advance. It can, the the best timed uh, thing ever was when we uh, decided that, yes, he might be a bit funny looking, but we can just risk putting Robert Kubica on the cover. And it took about, we did it about six weeks before the issue came out because magazine publishing cycles are very long. And in between us going, oh yeah, oh it's a bit squeaky. Oh, we might not. Oh, will people recognise him? Will people care? He went and won his first Grand Prix. Swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Some you win, some you lose, but it's still a very good issue. So I'd urge people to get it. I'd also recommend people have a look at our autosport.com plus subscriber area. 94p a week gets you access to all sorts of extra in-depth features and columns and analysis. Ben Anderson's driver ratings, which you can disagree with very, very angrily when your favourite driver doesn't get 10 out of 10 every week, despite the fact they've spun off three times during the race. You might even find something really vexing by me that will cause you to email me every two weeks to (laughs) tell me that autosport needs more interesting writers. Regular angry criticism is always always what you need. That's the lifeblood of of this industry. But for now, thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey guys, gut check. If your six-pack abs are covered with flab, it's time to cut the fat. Lose weight the easy way with Nutrisystem for men. Now delivering hearty inspirations meals that fill you up without letting you down. We're talking bigger lunches and bigger dinners packed with protein to control hunger for up to five hours. From savory bourbon chicken to mouth-watering meatloaf, they're exactly what a man's body needs to power through the day. You get breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks all fully prepared, totally delicious and delivered free to your door. No salads, no juices, just real food for serious appetites. Order today and get all new fuel shakes for men. They're made with the key ingredient Velocitol that doubles the power of protein to help you maintain muscle mass while losing weight and feeling satisfied. Don't wait any longer. Order now for a simple way to lose weight, build strength, boost energy, and burn fat. Go to Nutrisystem.com protein to lock in your special deal. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.